The world is changing all around us. Little by little, the world we once knew ceases to exist, transforming all around us. With so much uncertainty, it becomes impossible to determine what tomorrow will bring. Patricia Furland, in her paper, Communicating Health Uncertainty, says the news media have been accused of distorting, exaggerating or amplifying risks which can lead to fear, mongering and public panic. Can our generation be the agents of change in a media sphere tainted by sensationalism and moral panic? Or is there a brighter future ahead? One where the news media is reliable and fact-checked. Coming up on The Wave. A charity food bank tells their story on providing food aid for those in need. The world on the brink of crisis. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report is in. What can you do to play your part? And Taylor Swift fans are burning for the artist's upcoming re-release of her Red album. This is The Wave by Mojo News. Here are your hosts for this episode, David Bonadio and Mae James. Good evening. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last week released the most unequivocal report to date on the impacts of global warming. The report from the IPCC details concerns our time to act on climate change is almost up. Brianna Eddy Bowles with the latest. A code red for humanity. The latest IPCC report confirms that the Earth's temperature is rising at dangerous levels. Monash University professor and lead author on the 2013 IPCC report, Julie Arblaster, warns that rising temperatures will lead to extreme weather events. We are expecting even at one and a half degrees that we'll have more extreme events, more heat waves, more of these heavy rainfall events that we've we've seen in Germany, for instance. And it's both the severity of those, but also the frequency with which they happen. But if we can stay at one and a half um, or two degrees, then those extremes won't get as severe. The report states that observed increases in greenhouse gas concentrations are unequivocally caused by human activities. Every report has a statement about how much human activities are contributing to global warming and and every report has been clearer and clearer and and this report is the clearest yet it's unequivocal so we know from the data that that greenhouse gases in their concentration in the atmosphere has, has gone up and that's really correlated with industrial activity and so burning of coal is coal is is one of the main contributors um, oil use any fossil fuels um, when they're burned emit greenhouse gases co2 Unless immediate, rapid and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions take place, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius will be beyond reach. And the scenario that sticks to 1.5 degrees warming this century includes a rapid shift to renewable energy and also it requires net zero emissions at some point. Net zero means you have to offset the fossil fuel emissions that you do create with other ways of taking them out of the atmosphere. So that could be, for instance, planting more more forests. 
The, that scenario also requires some carbon dioxide removal techniques, so actually taking the CO2 that's in the atmosphere out. The sooner we start, the better it'll be. In response to the report, Minister for Emissions Reduction Angus Taylor said Australia was committed to reaching net zero as soon as possible. We've had a lot of heat waves and we've had yeah, bushfires, all the kinds of things that we expect under a warming world. I think Australians are very aware of these extremes and how they, they've impacted us recently, so we want to try and limit them. And that's the difficulty. If we, if we keep delaying action, then it's just going to get harder. We can't start in 2040 to get to net zero. In 2050, we have to start now. And we need to do more as um, Australians and the, the Australian government in particular needs to take more leadership in this. But there is still hope for the future. The IPCC report suggests that if we can reach net zero by 2050, we will be able to halt the rise in temperature. As I, I guess I've said, and what the IPCC says is that every action counts. And so, you know, if all Australians do take a little bit of action, then it does add up to a lot. And the most important thing I would say is vote and, and use your voice to communicate how important and urgent this issue is. And, and that then can move mountains. Brianna Eddie Bowles, Mojo News. Indigenous children between the ages of 12 and 15 are now eligible for the Pfizer vaccine. In a positive step forward towards vaccination targets, here's May James and Kate Seafi with the latest. Vaccinations. It's been a contentious issue for Australians since the pandemic began. Who should get vaccinated first? Who is at the most risk? And what age group do we start with? These questions affect all Australians, but especially vulnerable communities. According to the National Rural Health Alliance, over 60% of Indigenous Australians live rurally, consequentially having limited access to adequate health services. With local hospitals and clinics not equipped to deal with large outbreaks of the virus in the same way inner cities can, the threat of COVID-19 is most significant to these isolated communities. With Melbourne's latest lockdown caused by an outbreak at high school Al-Taqwa College, the problem with unvaccinated children spreading the virus into the community is becoming more of an actualised threat. With children accounting for 40% of the rural Indigenous community population, the threat is even more ominous. Last week, Scott Morrison announced the $1 billion Closing the Gap campaign, focusing on improving the lives of First Nations people through a holistic approach to education, employment, the judicial system and, topically, healthcare that was formulated in partnership with 50 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. Journalists took the opportunity to press the Prime Minister on his vaccination program, which has been plagued with problems since its outset. One of our greatest concerns, if not our greatest concern at the outset of this pandemic, was the potential harm it would do in Indigenous communities. And to date, we have been successful in preventing that harm in Indigenous communities. Whilst the federal government remains optimistic about the protection of First Nations youth, an outbreak of COVID-19 in Walgett, New South Wales, of 25 cases on Friday last week, where less than 4% of the population is vaccinated, is already proof that the vaccine rollout is not happening quick enough. While celebration can be had in the reality that no Indigenous person in Australia has died of COVID-19, the real test of success, however, lies with the impact of vaccine hesitancy. Whether Indigenous people are willing to vaccinate their children is key, 
as the death rate of zero could change dramatically should a major outbreak occur in an unvaccinated population. Since early August, Indigenous children and those with underlying health conditions aged 12 to 15 are now eligible for the Pfizer vaccine. I spoke with Ron Murray, a proud Wamba Wamba man whose 20-year-old son has just had his second dose of the Pfizer vaccine last Tuesday. He is hoping his youngest son, who is turning 12 in just over a week, will also be able to get vaccinated as soon as possible. So Ron, you've already informed me that you would like your son to get vaccinated. Yep, yep, I would. Why do you think it is beneficial for him to get it as soon as he can? Um, probably more, yeah, for his protection, but for protection of the community too. I still remember as a young fella with, um, there was kids getting around with um, catching polio when I was a kid. And, and plus, if they bring in all this stuff that you can't travel to, you know, like um, travel out of the country or even if we can't travel into state, that worries me that we won't be able to do it. Yeah, does the fact that your son is so young and about to get vaccinated worry you? Yeah, it does worry me, but um, I, I am, but I'm not, sort of thing. Yeah, it's a hard one, a hard question, that one. <laughs> so why do you think it is so important that children, but especially Indigenous children, get vaccinated early? Um, I think because we're more of a social group. A bit like, you know, if you look at the African community and some of these new uh, Sudanese and all that, there's so many live in one house and they all mix and they're a very social group too, like us. Yeah. Because I don't think white Australians are more like that. You know, they've sort of got their immediate friends and their immediate family, but more like that. And the communities, there's so many more living in houses. Like you go to my uncle's houses in Barranal, and there could be up to, you know, 15 to 20 people. How will it make you feel having both of your sons vaccinated? Um, yeah, I feel a lot, a lot safer um, that we're not going to get it. And have you spoken to any other Indigenous parents or parents of Indigenous children about if they're going to get their kids vaccinated? Well, some of my cousins I've spoken to, they're, yeah, they're all for it. Um, but, you know, saying that I haven't been able to my community to, to really talk to them. And there's still these people, but this bloke said he's not getting done. That was Ron Murray. Now that Indigenous children are eligible to get vaccinated, Ron remains hopeful that they will. Caitlin Seafi and May James, Mojo News. Multi-Grammy award-winning artist Taylor Swift is amping up for her re-release of her smash hit album, Red. Following three successful pandemic albums, Folklore, Evermore and Fearless, Taylor's version, Swifties couldn't be more excited for the release. Sahani Gunatalika reports. Taylor Swift has dropped a cryptic teaser on Instagram this week, which had fans scrambling to decode the vault tracks of her soon-to-be-released re-recorded version of Red. I really, really enjoy decoding the hidden messages she leaves for us as fans. I've tried a few times, but a lot of people just beat me to it, especially like when I watch Clever News on YouTube. Fans are especially excited to hear her new version of the track All Too Well. I feel like Red is a fandom-wide favourite and I'm honestly excited to hear all of the tracks. I also can't wait for the Vault songs though, especially the 10-minute version of All Too Well. My favourite track is All Too Well, so I'm really excited for the All Too Well 10 minutes version and I'm excited to hear the Vault tracks. Despite the excitement, Taylor's re-releases remind fans that she has been fighting for years for the financial freedom and distribution of her own work. Even though I'm excited for her re-releases, I will say it's extremely upsetting and disappointing. 
that she has been put in the position to have to do so. While waiting for the re-release of Red, fans are already looking forward to what Taylor Swift has in store for the future. Yeah, everyone's also been in the talks of 1989 re-recorded. We never know when that's going to draw. Taylor's version of the Red album is set to be released on the 19th of November. Sahani Ganathilaka, Mojo News. Next is the politics wrap with Emma and Vari, and there doesn't seem to be any reprieve of the Melbourne lockdown anytime soon, does there, Emma? That's right, David. Melbourne has announced it will remain in lockdown for at least another two weeks amid rising cases. This extension includes the closure of playgrounds and the reintroduction of a curfew, which will require Melbournians to stay at home between 9pm and 5am each day. These new restrictions are expected to stay in place until 11.59pm on September 2nd. Concerns are being raised over the proposed suburban rail loop's purpose in Victoria's transport plan. The Andrews Labor government announced the mega project in 2018, but has since not released the business case of the mega project. Construction is due to commence in 2022. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced Australia has secured another 1 million Pfizer doses on top of the 40 million already purchased in a bid to get Australia out of the COVID-19 pandemic. But questions have been raised whether the vaccines will protect Australians from all strains of the virus. Back to you, David and May. If you are struggling with your mental health due to the COVID-19 lockdowns, you can call Lifeline on 131114. Up next is sport with Seb Mottram. And Australia didn't do too well in the cricket last week, did they, Seb? Unfortunately not, David and May. Australia saw its lowest score yet in the fifth T20 series against Bangladesh as the home side claimed a 4-1 series victory. Here's Rishabh Jain with a rundown. As some of you may know, there are some big cricketing events coming up in two to three months. But unfortunately, our Australian cricket team isn't looking very good at the moment. Australia is set to compete at the T20 World Cup taking place in the UAE and Oman starting this October. The team had recently took the West Indies and Bangladesh for one day leg ahead of the T20 World Cup. During the West Indies tour, Australia chose to rest a few of our key players like David Warner and Stephen Smith and other important players in the T20I circuit. In the past five T20Is, the Australian cricket team has only managed to win one match in the whole T20I series against West Indies. That is not the Aussie nature we are used to. Aussies are aggressive and dominating cricket. They are far above this kind of performance. They seem to have lost their will to fight and working structure of the team. As I previously mentioned, the team recently went to Bangladesh. The Aussies showed a below-average performance there. The highest score for Australia was 121 runs. It was the first time that Australia has lost a series to Bangladesh in any format of the game. The seemingly lone warrior who has fought hard for Australia in both series is Mitchell Marsh. The only positive for Australia from the outcome of these series. His currently currently T20I ranking is 9 and thankfully showed that he can easily fill the gap that Steven Smith has left in the upcoming tournament. Injured Aussie star Steven Smith said in an interview earlier this year that he would give the T20 World Cup a miss to be fit for the Ashes later this year. That's all from me this week. Rishabh Jain, Mojo News. 
There have been calls for an investigation into the alleged failed and broken structure of Triathlon Australia, which have come after Australia's poor performance at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Claudia Sullivan and Emma Calloway reports. Two-time triathlon champion Emma Carney has called for an independent inquiry into Triathlon Australia, which she alleges has a broken culture that facilitates bullying, discrimination, harassment and abuse. Carney has set up a change.org petition which now contains 700 signatures. Carney has contacted the Federal Sports Minister Richard Colbeck, outlining Australia's decline in the sport. Carney has also contacted the Federal Sports Minister Richard Colbeck, outlining Australia's decline in the sport. This came after Australia's less than stellar performance in the triathlon events at the Tokyo Olympics. Emma Carney alleges that an increase in government funding has had no clear positive outcome for Australian triathletes, but rather has been invested in administration and employee benefits. Carney has been active on Twitter, keeping her 8,000-strong fan base updated on the story, including posting an email from Triathlon Australia asking her to cease and desist. In the past, Carney has had a strange relationship with Triathlon Australia, having called for the implementation of regular heart checks after the discovery of her own condition forcing her into early retirement. The last Australian to win gold in the World Triathlon Championship was Emma Moffat in 2010. Claudia Sullivan, Mojo News. And that's all from me for this week's sport. You can catch more sports discussion on The Sporting Post, 8pm live tomorrow night on Mojo News' social pages. Back to you, David and May. Thanks, Seb. The pandemic has seen many people doing it tough, hasn't it, May? Indeed they have, David. Here is a heartwarming story by Karuna Balasubramanian on some people with the biggest hearts around. Charities and community organizations are once again coming together to provide food assistance to struggling Victorians during the state's sixth lockdown. The Hunger 2020 report reveals that there has been a significant increase in the demand for food relief by Australians during the pandemic. For charities like Oz Harvest, COVID-19 has shifted the main agenda from food rescue and food waste prevention to providing food aid. Oz Harvest Victoria State Manager Bernardo Tobias says community organizations working around the clock to provide food relief is a heartwarming gesture. Yeah, and it's it's actually it's actually to me the silver lining of this crisis is essentially how the community got together and worked together to 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 um, make sure that no one's left behind. So it's been a brilliant thing to see. But- by having a local level collaboration, Oz Harvest has been depending on agencies and charities as hubs to distribute food aid in regional Victoria. The charity organization says they have been distributing over 25 tons of it per week and the continuous need for food relief is very concerning. Mr. Tobias says, while food relief is an essential service, there is a greater need for a holistic approach to address food insecurity in the long run. So it requires a very holistic approach that includes policy interventions, policy changes, community engagement, community education and school-based programs to create that long-term change. Karunabala Subramanian, Mojo News. It's time for this week's Vibe Check. And for this week, we thought we'd take you to the land of Booktopia. And to break down all the must-reads or must-listens if Audible's your thing, here's Claudia Sullivan and Emma Calloway with this week's book review. 
Today is Mojo's first book review, and we will be doing Pachinko. This endearing and fascinating novel is a culmination of several stories about family. Pachinko, written by Min Jin Lee, took almost 30 years to make, with two full drafts being discarded before the author was satisfied with the final piece. First published in February 2017, the book instantly made waves. Pachinko was a finalist in the United States' esteemed National Book Award for Fiction, featured on the New York Times and Barack Obama's recommended reading lists, and has now been adapted as a drama series soon to be released on Apple TV. With a staggering amount of research by Lee, who herself majored in history at Yale University, the story spans eight decades, two countries and four generations of family. Beginning in 1911 Korea, we focus upon the lives of a hard-working peasant family navigating the uncontrollable events of the world around them as their home country suffers through Japanese occupation. Lee has said that what really drove her to write this book was, quote, the compelling stories of individuals who struggled to face historical catastrophes, end quote. Emma, what are your initial thoughts on this one? Reading this book, I felt like that I was really being transported back into time, um, taking me through the motions of what it was actually like to be Korean before, during and after the war. For me, the pure breadth of this book was absolutely amazing. While reading through the eight decades of experience um, and the way the story still manages to explore each character in such detail was just absolutely fascinating. If nothing else, I think this book really is a history lesson that teaches us Korea's truth about such a momentous time in world history. And what about you, Claudia? What did you think of it? Mm, yeah, I love this book. And yeah, I agree with you. It's always easier to understand history when told as a story. Yeah, and you really trust what the author is doing. It is quite long, but the story is never tedious or unnecessary. I found it upsetting leaving some characters behind at times after all they'd been through. Um, I wanted to shake some of the characters and yell, respect your elders, which, you know, I'm sure there is a lesson in that. It's a bit ironic. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I did find it a little suspect that the characters seem to anticipate history so accurately at some points. Um, I mean, could you really have known what was going to happen if you were living in that time? Um, it reminds me of the black swan theory coined by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, whereby people will rationalise an unpredictable and shocking event with the benefit of their hindsight. I mean, how much of these characters' decisions do you think were directed by Min Jin Lee's knowledge of history? Yeah, I agree. I think hindsight will always have an impact on the way that history is told. I'd be interested to know if this was the case when Lee was telling this story or if it was, in fact, intentional foreshadowing on her behalf. What do you rate this book, Claudia? Uh, I loved learning about ordinary people experiencing extraordinary events. It makes me wonder what I would do and if I could survive the same thing. Not likely. Uh, I give it four and a half stars. Yeah, I don't think that would be likely for me either. <laughs> um, I did go into reading this book without knowing anything about the author or the story and how the book came about. So when I did finally put it down, I thought, wow, that must have taken so long to write. And now I know that it did, 30 years in the making. I'm going to have to give it five stars for pure tenacity and grace in getting this story right. Oh, you're making me want to change my review. <laughs> um, next week, we will be reviewing The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. Claudia and Emma, signing off for Mojo News.
The animated film Vivo is the latest ISO movie must-watch. Mojo News reporter Abhisha gives us a rundown of the film and chats to an animator who gives us their take. Sony Animation Pictures now has another feather in their cape with the release of the movie Vivo. Outstanding music and unique animation is all this adventure movie is about. Directed by Kirk DeMaiko, the family-friendly musical adventure has Lin-Manuel Miranda giving his voice in some songs to the main character of Vivo. And yet again, Miranda delivers the best work. The movie is about a charismatic and kind Kinkajou who wanders around the streets singing and playing music to the crowd with his most beloved owner, Andres. The movie here shows how the two are the perfect duo as they bond over music while neither can understand each other's language. But tragedy strikes and then Vivo takes the responsibility of delivering his owner's message to his old love Martha, who lives a world apart. In doing so, Vivo takes the help of Gabby, who is a super energetic dream. The movie has some amazing music with very catchy rhythm that will get trapped in your head for hours. The songs also has very clever wordplay, which obviously is a reflection of Miranda's style of work. The movie switches between 2D and 3D animation and uses a vibrant range of colors in different scenes, making the movie super appealing. Kudos to Sony Animations for that. Sanket Agarwal, a former animation student, talks about this unique new style and mentions that it is something that was never done before in animation. Okay, so as an animator, I think the best part of the movie was that all the areas took inspiration from the surroundings and changed how the animation style was. For Cuba, the animation style was different. When they were in Key West, Florida, the animation style was different. And I think that that is something that I've not seen done in animations before. And I really appreciated that. Abhip Shah, Mojo News. Melissa Hong is back to sing another song for us. Performing a rendition of the Taylor Swift smash hit Red, it's Melissa Hong. Like wishing you never found out 
That is all we've got time for for this week on The Wave. You can subscribe to us through Mojo News on YouTube, Spotify and all the other places you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and head to mojonews.com.au. This has been The Wave. Thank you for your company. Good night. Good night.